Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Happy Wednesday to you. All right, so this is, um, as you know, Wednesday is the solo show. So Chris coming at you with another solo episode. What do I have for you today? Firstly, a small apology. Last time I um, may have here right away saying uh, I had... Chalmers Conscious Mind Part 2 coming at you, but I was getting delayed by reading the material. Um, basically, David Chalmers is making a, an argument really slowly because he's a very careful academic and philosopher. Uh, I told you last time I'd spent literally 50-plus pages trying to understand a concept, or he, try, he was trying to explain a concept called supervenience. So since then, I have 40 more pages in, and guess what? He just finished, just finished explaining what this concept of super, supervenience means. And I told you last time, I'm not interested in boring you. And if I sat here with eight pages of notes and talked to you about supervenience and only supervenience, you probably wouldn't listen next week. So I'm not doing that. Um, what I'm going to have to do is keep reading, figure out where he's going with this argument. I mean, kind of see where he's going already, uh, because the idea of supervenience is that one set of facts depends on another. And if you, that's basically it, guys. I just sum, summarized it in, a, in a one sentence. It took him a hundred pages to say that. There's more to it. I'm oversimplifying, but what he basically means is, like any scientist would say, if you know. All of the laws of physics, you know all of the cause and effect relationships, and you know everything about the position and momentum of every particle and every field of energy in the cosmos, and you know the history of those fields of energies and particles and so forth, everything from the Big Bang to right now. If you knew all of those facts, those are physical facts, if you know all of them, then you can explain everything else. So the idea is, if you know how quantum physics works uh, deep down, you can explain from just those facts how something like life can emerge, or how biological life evolves from single-celled organisms to you and I, that you can deduce all of that from, from more fundamental facts. So what David Chalmers would say is that the biological facts supervene on the physical facts. Okay. I can understand that. It's easy enough. I can understand every scientist, especially atheist types, um, making that argument, and it's very compelling. What David Chalmers is doing is trying to lay this out where he's saying, 
hey, there are things that perhaps don't supervene on the physical. And the best example of that is consciousness. How can you say if you know every fact, all of the physical facts in the cosmos from the beginning of time to right now, if you know everything, that none of that information would help you to determine what consciousness is? Consciousness doesn't supervene on the physical. Okay, that's where I am right now. The rest of the argument is yet to be determined. I've got three quarters of the book left to go, and he's going to lay this out step by step. So what I want to do is figure out what all those steps are and try to make it palatable and come to you and explain to you what he's trying to say. I think it's going to be interesting. It's starting to get interesting now. But Jesus, for the last hundred pages, it's been dry. So that's the reason why you're not getting Chalmers' Conscious Mind Part 2 today. So what are you getting? Well, last couple times we got together, uh, what I did was I read for you pieces, uh, essays basically, that I, that I wrote way back when, when I was first considering doing this podcast. It was right after I had my first mystic experience that we talked about, you know, kind of blew my mind. I mean, literally blew my mind. Made me think about the world and myself differently in every possible way. And uh, for me, it was a religious experience. It was a spiritual thing. And I had all these thoughts and ideas that were overwhelming, and I was trying to figure out what they meant. And so I put them down on paper, because that, that's how you think. It's one of the ways that you think, to have a conversation, kind of like I'm doing right now, um, or writing something out. Those are the ways you think. You know, people think you could just close your eyes and ponder, and you can. But you're not going to get very far. You have to really organize and conceptualize those things so that they make sense for you. And it's the only way you, that you can kind of believe it. And with a mystic experience, it's, it's fucking hard to believe. So it takes a lot of talking and a lot of thinking. And I dr drove my wife completely crazy in the first couple of years afterwards trying to talk because she wasn't particularly interested in, in hearing the nonsense hippie talk that I was giving her. And I couldn't shut up about it. I couldn't get those, I had to get those thoughts out of my head. All right, so that brings me to what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to read this third part of the essay for you. And it basically had to do with me doing exactly that, trying to make sense of this mystic experience, trying to make sense of what it meant, what I thought it meant, the, the strong impressions it left on me. And one of the ways I did that was to spend some time in a float tank. So anybody who uh, is familiar with uh, Joe Rogan probably heard that um, talked about a lot, especially in the early days, a sensory deprivation tank. Uh, we talked about it on the podcast before, but just so you know, um, they used to be hard to find. They used to be basically homemade, and you can only, you can only find them in California. Uh, but today, they're everywhere. They're, it's big business, and any, I mean, you can go to a float spa, you know, where they, that's basically all they do, or you can go to uh, a spa where they do lots of things, and that's one of your options. It fits in really well in a spa environment because it's super relaxing. Um, you're going you're gonna to get into this capsule. You're going to shut yourself in to where you can't see or feel or hear anything for an extended period of time. And if you're like Joe Rogan and his buddies, um, you might use an aid of some uh, psychoactive substances while you're at it and then let it rip. And what happens is in, in the sensory deprivation tank, it is, as I'm explaining, um, depriving you of any sort of sense experience can't see anything, you can't feel anything, you can't hear anything, you can't taste anything. It's almost like you don't exist. 
And when that happens, you can get into some deeply meditative states. You can think a million miles an hour, and you can have experiences. Some some of them are akin to a hallucinogenic type of experience, uh, a visional, a, a visionary experience, um, and it has something to do with your brain getting so accustomed to um, sense input. You know, your brain's always processing stuff that when it's not processing anything for an extended period of time and you're not asleep, your brain kind of freaks out. It will do things. It'll cause you little itches and little pains and little distractions will pop up like you're trying to meditate. You get, you know, all kinds of thoughts that come in your mind. You know, anybody who's struggling to sleep, laying down, trying to quiet your mind, that's what I'm talking about. All those sorts of things. But that they can even be physical. Like, like I said, little pains or twinges or tickles. It's like there's nothing, in, there's nothing in there causing you pain. But you might feel a pain because your brain's like, what's going on? You know, send a message of alarm. Anyway, so that's what I did. I, I, I went to a local float spa. I wanted to think really deeply about those experiences I had. And then I wrote about them. So if you're ready... Strap in. All right, here we go. Sitting in front of a large, capsule-shaped plastic shell, I imagined what experience I'd soon be having within it. I was, after all, at the local sensory deprivation, or float spa, preparing to embark on an inner quest. Popularized by comedian and podcaster Joe Rogan, this was an experience I'd heard described many, many times before. But now, the time had come for me to see for myself. I opened the lid to reveal a dim light submerged beneath a shallow pool of water. Carried with the light was an unfamiliar smell, a waft of moist air, and the promise of self-knowledge. I stepped in, felt the slick film of pounds of dissolved salt cling to my skin, and shut the door behind me. In an instant, I was absorbed in the most complete darkness. Within minutes, I had settled into perfect stillness. The water was calm around me, and it was deathly quiet. A few minutes more brought calm to my mind as well, until I noticed I was no longer aware of my limbs or body. As advertised, I found myself floating in an infinite space of perfect black. There was no body in that space, nothing to see, to hear, or to feel. As I lay there, I asked myself to imagine that this was real, to suspend the knowledge that I was a man in a tank, and experience what it is to be only consciousness. I was a mind in a vat. I was a sequence of thoughts and images which existed without reference to my body or my senses. I could feel I was approaching some sort of realization, and so I did what the Easter tradition recommends and meditated, trying to facilitate a revelation. Anyone who has attempted meditation will know what I struggled with, but after several failed attempts at quieting my mind, I found myself in timelessness. In that moment, I had become awareness and nothing else. Even in the absence of sense experience, 
like Descartes before me. I was aware that I was aware. This experience continued for an indeterminate period, but by degrees, thoughts began to trickle once again into my immediate awareness. A question rose up. If this is what it is to be conscious in the absence of a material context, what can it tell me of the nature of consciousness? If consciousness is the thing which brings material reality into being, it, like material reality, pre-exists a material context. As it was for me in the sensory deprivation tank, consciousness as such has nothing outside of itself to experience. There are no objects to see or feel or contend with. And as such, there are no thoughts to be had either. Without reference to something outside of itself, consciousness would be simply and purely awareness. As with me, this would not be awareness of nothing. What could that even mean? But rather, awareness of its own awareness. But what could this mean? What is awareness of awareness? Now this question occupied my mind in the weeks and months that followed the float tank experience. I found myself again and again reliving certain thoughts. Things like, Consciousness is undifferentiated being. It is the substance of all material reality. And as a conscious creature, I somehow participate in consciousness. And other things too, like, what is the difference between my consciousness and consciousness as such? And if all things are consciousness, how can I be distinct from them? I ran these thoughts through my head ad nauseum until a sequence of logic started to unfold for me. It seemed to me that logic dictated the following. 1. If consciousness is the source and substance of being, then all of material reality is consciousness. 2. I am conscious because, like all things, I emerged from consciousness. 3. Consciousness experiences. This is what it does. And four, because consciousness is all that is, all there is for it to experience is itself. And here's the kicker. If consciousness exists in a pre-material state and as material reality, and to experience itself is what it does, then the act of self-experience, the awareness of awareness that I encountered in the float tank, that is integrally connected to being or the emergence of material reality. The revelation, you see, is that material reality is the product of consciousness experiencing itself, consciousness doing what it does, being what it is. The so-called act of creation in this context, is nothing more and could be nothing other than consciousness being. Now, if you will indulge me, we will continue for now using the title of God in place of consciousness to describe that which gives rise to material reality. And it might be asked at this point, 
what the relationship is between our consciousness and God. We've already noted, after all, that consciousness is all that truly exists. How then can we explain our experience of a personal, differentiated consciousness? To answer this question, I hearken back to our earlier discussion of perception and illusion. You see, there is a vast difference between having the perception of being a distinct individual consciousness and actually being so. Stated differently, we exist under the illusion of independent existence, when in reality, we are no such thing. But why should this be so? The answer to this question comes jointly from philosophy and psychology. When we examine the idea of God as the all, for instance, we are confronted with a thing which contains within it the infinite potential for material reality. It is that which all things can emerge. It is pure potentiality. But in being so, like my earlier example of black paint made from or containing within it all other colors, it is all things simultaneously. All things simultaneously is what I mean by undifferentiated being. It is that which exists and disappears into non-being. You see, if nothing exists apart from God, and all things exist within it as undifferentiated potential, it may be that it's impossible to have any experience of God. There are no constituent parts to divide God from itself, nothing outside of God to compare it to, and so nothing can be known about it. In summary, that which is not limited but is everything all at once is entirely unknowable. Something other, it seems, something distinct from itself, is necessary for God to have an experience of itself. Taking this to the next logical step, we see that God's self-experience, its awareness of its awareness, manifests being as that other, which makes its self-experience possible. When God experiences itself, it, it fractures into limited but infinite beings, which can experience one another. This is God's self-experience, what you and I call being. You see, you and I and all things for all of time are God's self-experience. Our experiences of material reality and of one another are nothing more than God's experience of itself. Now take a minute to let that sink in. We are the sense organs and archive of God's self-experience. The panpsychist perspective adheres to this perfectly. They would say, for instance, that all of matter is conscious. It might be imagined along these lines that even the most fundamental forms of matter have awareness. So a quark, you might imagine, experiences its spin and charge. An electron experiences an orbital jump. A star experiences its gravitational force. We, of course, are aware of more still and seek continually to expand our experience in new and novel ways. 
And this corresponds directly to the nature of God as infinite potentiality, as new and novel experiences bring into being more and more of that potential. Okay, now that we've established the relationship between the undifferentiated God consciousness and our own consciousness in being, we can turn again to psychology for a better understanding of what this means. We learn from psychology and related fields that we human beings exist in a sort of representation of the world, rather than the world as it is. It was made clear in our discussion of perception and illusion that reality is far more complex than we are able to be consciously aware. We see a cat on the street, for instance, and do not see a web of cells acting together to sustain the macro-existence of a furry mammal. Nor do we see the universe of protons, electrons, and empty space that make up those cells. Instead, we perceive only the limited representation of that complexity, which takes the form of a cat on the street. It exists in this limited way only in our consciousness. We experience the cat as if it were the only limited representation, and not the full, overwhelming complexity that it really is. We can see the same thing in language and symbolic representation. With these arts, we have quite literally created a psychic stand-in for objects or experiences in reality, which are intelligible to us and can be used to navigate and understand the world. Words, pictures, music, and art are all examples. This capacity of representation turns out to be prerequisite for experiencing anything. Psychology again provides the framework for this with the idea of projection. Projection is the notion that a sort of pre-existing model of an unknown object or experience exists within our psyche even before we've ever experienced it what the philosophers call a priori. The model or projection applies uniformly to anything yet unencountered. It is the generic placeholder onto which experience can be mapped. This idea is integrally linked to what the psychologist E.N. Sokolov described in his neurological study of novelty. Sokolov's experiments showed that the novel or yet unencountered, serves as an unconditioned stimulus on the psyche. That the brain comes out of the box, wired to respond to the unknown. Projection, therefore, can be considered the unconditioned stimulus necessary for anything to be experienced. The psychologist Jordan Peterson puts it this way, quote, If one meets an unknown woman, it is not possible to make contact without projecting something. You must make a hypothesis, which of course is done quite unconsciously. The woman is elderly and probably a kind of mother figure, and a normal human being, etc. You make assumptions, and then you have a bridge. When you know the person better, then many earlier assumptions may be discarded, and you must admit that your conclusions were incorrect. Unless this is done then you are hampered in your contact. At first, one has to project or there is no contact. 
but then one should be able to correct the projections. And it is the same not only as regards human beings, but everything else also. The projection apparatus must, of necessity, work in us. Nothing can even be seen without the unconscious projection factor. Unquote. The distinction, you see, between projection and representation is not at all obvious. It seems to me that when I represent the world and use those representations to understand it and act within it, I am projecting those representations. If my conscious experience does this with material reality, it follows that God precedes me in this phenomena. God experiences itself in representation, just as we experience the world. Given that we are God's self-experience, it follows that being, you and I and all things for all of time, are the projection of God within itself. Being is the cat on the street. Jordan Peterson concludes, quote, This is why, according to Indian philosophy, the whole of reality is a projection. Unquote. We can understand ourselves as limited manifestations of God. Limited because we aren't exactly identical with God, but rather only its representation. Being is a dreamlike, diluted form of the genuine God consciousness, existing as a representation within itself. Now, taking our own conscious experience as a sort of facsimile of God's, we are forced to address the transformative nature of our own consciousness. See, we have experiences in the world, and those experiences have the quality of changing our consciousness. You might recall a powerful experience, like falling in love, and understand quite naturally that you are not the same person after that experience as you were before. You were transformed by it. If nothing else, you became a person who understands that the love experience is possible. But even a commonplace experience has this effect. Recall a time when you fell and scraped your knee. After that experience, you became a person who understands pain and consequences, who recognizes, if even for a second, one's failure and inability to endure. On the other side of even this experience, one finds themselves transformed. Since we are but a representation of God, it is necessary to extend this transformative nature to God. More correctly, it is necessary to view our experience of transformation as a facsimile of the transformation of God. But what could this mean? What is the significance of the transformative nature of God? If we transpose the transformative nature of our consciousness onto God, we are left with the following supposition. God experiences itself and is changed by the encounter, becoming not just awareness, but awareness of awareness. God transforms itself into something new, something that knows itself and has experienced itself. By the act of self-experience, does not terminate here, but continues indefinitely. After all, consciousness does not cease being conscious. In this way, we must imagine 
that God's self-experience transforms itself and is, in turn, experienced anew. This process I've deemed the being generator, because that's exactly what it does. You see, if God's self-experience is being, and it is transformed by that experience, then it must follow that experience continually transforms being. Experience and being are tied together in a sort of feedback loop, which drives its own transformation. Simply put, God consciousness manifests being, and the experience of it transforms consciousness. We, of course, see this happening all around us all of the time. We see it in our own psychological and biological maturation, which develops from our experiences. We see it in the patterns of weather and currents in the ocean, which interact and transform continually. We see it also in all our creative endeavors, in the transformation of language, music, aesthetics, politics, religion, etc., And most dramatically, we see it in the adaptive response of biology with its environment, in evolution. Now, that last example is powerfully demonstrative. Consider what science has come to understand about the development of our universe and of biological life on Earth. In the first case, we see a dramatic transformation of the cosmos from the so-called Big Bang to the present moment. We understand the transformation to be a system which acts upon itself and continually transforms as a consequence. The physicist John Wheeler acknowledged this feedback loop analogy, speaking of Einstein's general theory of relativity, stating, quote, Mass tells space-time how to curve, and space-time tells mass how to move, unquote. We tell the same tale with natural and sexual selection, which states plainly that life emerged and continually transforms as a consequence of of its experiences or the conditions of its experience. In both of these instances, that of the birth of the cosmos and of life, we see the facsimile of God's own transformation mirrored in being in its own self-representation. But what does it mean that consciousness transforms? What does it mean that transformation is a fundamental quality of consciousness which extends to us? The most immediate and dramatic consequence of the transformative nature of consciousness is the perception of time, or perhaps space-time. We, of course, observe entropy in the cosmos and transformation of being and beings over time. But the concept of time seems to be merely a reference to the fact of transformation. For God, as we've stated, there is nothing external to reference. There can be no time or space to an entity which encompasses all things. There can be no before or after to the eternal, and no distance between the only thing that exists. Therefore, The change that we observe in being, birth, growth, death, radioactive decay, to name only a few, can be understood only as a representation of the transformation of God. 
as God experiences itself and is transformed into being, being experiences itself in transformation. We cannot resist it. All things are in a constant state of transformation, a state of becoming, as the philosophers would say. Now, referring back to the evidence from the mystic experience, the idea of timelessness or of eternity which characterizes it is dead relevant here. After all, if time is not applicable to God, then it must be said to be, in some fundamental way, timeless, eternal, or infinite. This truth is concealed in the conceptualization of consciousness as potential, or the source of, inf of infinite being. Interestingly, the way in which the in infinitude of God is represented in being has already been described and is intricately connected to its own nature. It is the feedback loop of God and being, of God's self-experience, which generates infinite forms or representations of consciousness, consciousness projected into being. In this way, God can be understood as a self-sustaining system, a being generator, which continually generates novel self-representations from its own self-experience. Consciousness is infinity in action. This idea is represented in the mystic experience in the image of the fractal. The fractal is a geometric pattern which is composed of smaller versions of the larger whole. Think branches on a tree, the network of veins and blood vessels, or a Jackson Pollock painting. Fractals are commonly reported in the mystic experience as sort of kaleidoscopic figures, which are often dramatically colorful and seem to generate patterns that emerge from and disappear into itself on infinitely larger and smaller scales. They are often associated with the sensation of animation, motion, or disembodied flight which sometimes accompany the mystic experience. To experience the fractal is to be swept away by the movement up and down levels of scale. It is like traveling deeper and deeper into something, only to find what you've already observed. It is something, paradoxically, like moving and standing still at the same time. The stream of changing colors intensifies the effect as they too seem to persuade the observer to follow along and descend deeper into the image. This experience often holds powerful emotional significance surrounding the feeling of life or animation which the fractals seem to possess. It is something like the realization that the structure and nature of the fractal, which seem to bring it to life, is somehow representative of the force that animates being. It is such a stark and unlikely feeling that the observer is left to conclude that which is being represented visually and emotionally reflects some deeper truth about reality. Just as the fractal is made of patterns within patterns which move within it and imbue it with life, all of being is structured this way. God is filled with self-representations that move within it and imbue it with life. It seems appropriate here to emphasize again the oneness or unity of God that also accompanies the mystic experience. 
we must remember when speaking of being and God as unique concepts that this is merely a convenience of language. God is, after all, potentiality and material reality all at once. When we speak of God manifesting being, we are really talking here about a property of God. God is that which is fundamental reality and that which, by virtue of its existence, generates being. It is the potentiality for being and being itself. What we are, what being is, is God, bounded by the illusion that we are something less, that we are something other. The illusion of perception and the limitations inherent in the projection of our being are fundamental qualities of God. God must be structured this way in order to manifest as being. That, after all, is part and parcel to what consciousness is. It is the result of consciousness being conscious. And finally, we cut to the heart of it. The dynamic between consciousness and being fulfills its own nature, that of eternity. What we are is that which experiences God for God, that which transforms so that God can transform, that which makes God infinite by transforming infinitely. We are that which makes God, God. God has no context outside of itself, outside of its own self-experience. It disappears into itself, into the all, the all which is the unknowable potentiality. Only when consciousness descends into self-awareness, only when it experiences itself, does the realm emerge where it can exist. This realm is being. Consciousness experiences itself into being and exists within itself as beings that experience one another. We are the microcosm existing within our own macrocosm, a fractal mirror of ourselves. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>